If you are joining us for the first time today, we are working through John's Gospel. And as we just read, we pick up at the end of chapter 15 and into chapter 16. Last Sunday, we learned that the world hates Jesus for no good reason. And verse 25 of chapter 15 says, they hated me without a cause. And we're still in the midst of this long goodbye that Jesus is, Jesus is saying goodbye and he's promising some things to his disciples. And he's instructing them about the world's hatred. So the world hates me, Jesus says, don't be surprised when they hate you also. Don't be surprised when they make fun of you on an airplane. Like Pastor Michael and described happened to he and Josh last week. Don't be surprised when, they make, when people mock you for your faith. Remember these two promises that Jesus is making in the midst of his goodbye. One, I, if I leave you, I will come again. I'm coming back to get you. And secondly, in the meantime, the, the Spirit of God, I'm going to send him. The Father and I are going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to be, it's going to be like I am present with you through the Spirit. He mediates the presence of Christ. But he's not just As we move into chapter 16, he's not just restating what we already learned in chapter 15, that he's promising to send the Spirit. He's saying something more in chapter 16. Here he's saying the promise of the Spirit is in the context of the world's opposition, of the world's hatred. It's the Spirit who will help the disciples to not only interpret the world's hatred toward them, but to enable them to not respond in like manner, so that Josh and Pastor Michael did not return the favor on the airplane. It's the spirit of the living God. Jesus says this. Don't be surprised when the world opposes you. Don't fall away, verse 1. Don't be surprised that, 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 that people are not going to like your Christianity. Don't be surprised by it. Don't fall away. It's the Spirit who will keep you. And don't, find, don't fight back. Don't return the favor. Not in like manner. Not with the same weapons. Christianity says the shape of our weaponry is cruciform. The shape of our response is a cross. It's not the same thing that people give to you. Christians don't, we, Christianity means, the gospel means we do not return hatred for hatred. Listen again to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 16. I'm saying these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. He's not just talking about the possibility of their lives being threatened. Remember, in John's gospel, the hour is coming, is always pointing toward the hour, the hour of Christ and his own crucifixion. He's tying his cross to their lives. He's tying their lives to his cross, what he's about to go do on their behalf. The hour is definitely coming when those who kill me will think they're doing God a good thing, a good service. Jesus is saying to his disciples, his own rejection, humiliation, suffering, and death 
ought to define, listen to this, to define the way that they respond to the world that opposes them. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit who's going to help them and enable them to respond to hatred and opposition like Christ would have them to respond to hatred and opposition. It is the Holy Spirit. Here's my, here's my proposition. Here's my argument. Here's the thesis if you want it in a sentence this morning. It is the Holy Spirit alone who will enable us to love the world and oppose the world at the same time. To love the world and oppose the world at the same time. The disciples have not yet grasped the way in which, the amazing way in which Jesus, the Son of God, walked all over the earth and loved the world and opposed the world at the very same time. They have not yet grasped how to do that. We have not yet grasped how to do that. Jesus says to the disciples, I'm going to promise you the Spirit. He is going to enable you and teach you and show you how to live in the world, but not of the world. How to live in the world, but not to hate the world. How to, li- how to live in the world and love the world, but not be mad at the world all the time. The Spirit of God alone can teach you how to do that. Christianity opposes the world, but maybe not the way that you think. We don't just yell louder. Did you ever notice that, when, then, that nobody wins those? When people just start yelling at each other, the, the person who yells the loudest, he, she, she, he, they don't win. Nobody wins those. We don't yell louder, and we certainly don't applaud when people get what they deserve. We don't rage against the world. The anger of man, the Bible says, never produces the righteousness of God. So we don't rage back. We oppose the world through the, listen, we oppose the world through the subversive power of the cross. The argument, the shape of our argument is the shape of a cross. The intensity uh, intensity of our argument is the intensity of the cross. The power of the argument that we have in a world that's unbelieving and uncaring and calloused and judgmental and self-righteous is not to return the favor. The power is in the cross of Jesus Christ. By turning the other cheek, by blessing those who curse you, By compassion, not judgment. Remember, you once walked, you once walked in worldliness. You and I once walked among the sons of disobedience, following the course of the prince of the power of the air. We we remember such were some of you, right? Paul says. So I love this passage because. And I want to whet your appetite on this text. I want to really invite you in to study verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. That's the center cut, 8 through 11. That's what I want to invite you to really grasp this morning. I want you to look at these verses, and I want you to to think of them as really valuable. Here's why. I love this passage because I am more likely to respond to worldliness with grace. I am more likely to respond to worldliness with the gospel whether it's worldliness in myself, worldliness in other believers, worldliness in the world. I'm far more likely to respond 
with grace and the gospel if I'm confident that the Holy Spirit owns this confrontation. If I'm confident that the Holy Spirit is the one who's who's bringing conviction. I, I love this passage because it's absolutely freeing. I'm not the one who has to bring conviction at this moment. I'm not the one who has to bring the correction at this moment. I'm not the one who, who needs to, to make explicit the problem in this moment. If, if I'm confident that the Spirit of God is working to make things right, and that's exactly what he's teaching the disciples. Jesus is teaching the disciples that they can trust that the Spirit of God, they're going to live in a world that opposes them and hates them, but the Spirit of God will continue to be at work, and he's going to do three things. He will convince the world of its sin. He will convince the world of its righteousness, and he will convince the world of its judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. It is absolutely liberating. I, I want to I hook you here for just a second. It is absolutely freeing and liberating when you can meet the Holy Spirit in a place and, and he, will, he will help you to stop trying to fix everything and he will give you confidence that he's in charge of fixing the world. I can be, I I will experience far more freedom as a Christian if I will see and discover these three things. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. There's a little mini theology of the Holy Spirit here. And I want you to see each of these three as they unfold. Number one, the Spirit of God will convict the world of its sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in Christ. In John's gospel, the concept of sin is always tied to rejecting Jesus. You'll see that right there in verse 9. The sin, the sin to be most concerned about, the sin to be most concerned about, John's gospel teaches us this. The sin to be most concerned about is the sin of rejecting Christ and his lordship in your life. Not whether or not this person got this thing right or that thing right or that thing wrong or this particular moral imperfection. Yes, in one sense, all sin is sin before God's eyes. But the greatest sin in John's gospel, by the time you get to the end of it, the greatest sin of John's gospel, there's no question in John's mind, right? It's one thing to love darkness rather than light because streams of darkness run deep in every one of us. It's one thing to love darkness rather than light. It's another thing to reject the only way out of the darkness. One commentator put it this way, the world's deepest misery and lostness I really like this. The world's deepest misery and lostness does not consist in its moral imperfection. The world's deepest misery and lostness does not consist in its moral imperfections. All the little things that it's doing wrong. But rather in its estrangement from God. Its refusal to allow itself to be called out of its imperfection by Christ who came for it. That's the great problem. And that'll change the way that you engage the world. So you can stop running around and pointing out everything everybody's doing wrong and start, we can start seeing that what the reason they're doing what they're doing is because they've rejected God. They've rejected Christ. 
they've rejected the Son of God. Jesus is teaching the disciples that despite the world's op- opposition and unbelief, the Spirit of God is still at work, at, at, at work, and He wants to be at work in them. You will be witnesses. Verses 26 and 27, you will be witnesses. Here's what he's trying to say. You will be witnesses for me. You will not be the Spirit of God in these people's lives. You'll be witnesses to the Spirit of God's work. So you and I should be more concerned about the Spirit of God at work within us that we might then verify our witness before other people instead of just telling everybody what they're doing wrong. This has massive implications for you as a parent, as a coworker, as a spouse, as a church member. Once I grasp that the Spirit of God is the one who's convincing people of sin and the most important sin, which would be unbelief or just ignoring Jesus' lordship in your life if you're a believer, if I can get to that place, then I'm just far less concerned about all the minor infractions. They're, They're traffic tickets in comparison. You see what I'm saying? If we're not careful... In Christianity, we'll promote this idea of Christianity that's based on us trying to figure out how to help everybody fix their their little moral infractions. Christianity is not about you getting your moral infractions fixed. It's about discovering the Son of God who wants to redeem all of your moral imperfections. So... If the Spirit of God is is going to extend the ministry of Christ in ways that the disciples could never see or dream of accomplishing, then we want to get in on that. Look at the beauty of this. He will. Let verse 8 sink in. He will convict the world. I'm not sending you out as disciples to go convict the world of its sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, there's a fundamentalistic strain in, in and among us as believers, and I'm not just talking about Baptists that seems to think we will convict the world. I can't convict you. You can't convict me. Jesus is saying to to the disciples, you don't have the power to convince the world of who I am. You don't have the ability to expose people's sin. You can't convince anyone of their guilt before God. Only the Holy Spirit can change the heart of another person. Yes, Jesus commissions them to be witnesses. Disciples go and they make disciples and they preach the gospel. Yes, we are called to persuade. Yes, we are called to make a reasonable and compelling case for the Christian faith. But we are not called to go and be the Holy Spirit in everybody's life. You've met Christians who seem like they've been deputized to be the Holy Spirit. That's no fun. That's no fun. Zero fun, sir. This is liberating, verse 8. He will convict people of their sin and their unbelief. Not you. Jesus was walking among the disciples, walking with the, Jesus was walking in the world, and he was walking with the disciples, and they would watch him. They would watch him work, and he would walk into a place, he would meet sinners, he would love them, and he would oppose their sin at the same time, amazingly, almost magically. The Spirit of God, Jesus says, will be present with you so you can continue to be disciples and witnesses of my power. 
so that the world will be loved and opposed at the same time. But it'll be the gospel and it'll be the spirit who brings conviction. So it's not my job to convict people of sin. It's not your job to convict people of their sin. There is so much freedom in this. How would this change the way that you relate to other believers? It would, it would, it would soften your critical spirit. If you are convinced that the Holy Spirit of God was powerful and able to bring someone to awareness, it would soften your critical spirit. It would help me to see that my assumptions are often uncharitable, unwarranted. It would slow down your words and speed up your listening, James says. How would it change to the how would how would this change the way we relate to other believers? It would change us like that. How would it change the way we relate to the worldliness that is around us? It would it would it would create a, a sense of humility in us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't just slap a lawsuit on them. Don't just demand your rights. Remember, you came out of the world and its worldliness. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the Spirit of God. You're no longer your own. Your body's like the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're possessed by the Spirit of God now. So you can't just do whatever you want and demand your rights, Paul says. It creates a sense of humility as we interact with the world. It's not us versus them. It's I was you. It's not good English. But I was you. I feel your pain. I feel your compassion. There's still I, the same worldliness that you're struggling with still lives inside of me. That's a different tone. That's a different tone than us versus them. Romans chapter 12 says, 1 Corinthians 6 teaches me that I can engage the world with humility. Romans chapter 12 teaches me not to take things personally. When the world mocks me or judges me or even other Christians, somehow uh, I get in opposition to another believer. I can trust the Spirit of God to be the prosecuting attorney. I can trust the Spirit of God to be the prosecuting attorney in my case. My job is to bless and not curse. Not to respond, Paul says in Romans 12, don't just return evil for evil. There's no gospel, there's no gospel power when you return evil for evil. Yesterday, a couple of us were on the road, on our, uh, we were riding bikes, and we were coming back up from a nice Saturday morning downtown ride, and um, somebody just doing a little, somebody's doing a little mocking, driving by, they're doing a little mocking of the bike, bikers, please don't ever mock bikers, don't roll down your window and just mock them for no good reason, um, that happened to us, so we were driving down, and some guy came by with his window down, and just kind of mocking at us, and, and uh, the worldliness inside of me had a little response that I was sort of ready to give. I got worldly for a minute, and I'm like, I got, I got something for you. You know? You ever had that feeling? Don't act like all righteous and stuff on Sunday morning here. I know, you know what I'm talking about. There's no gospel at work in that when you try to send it back across the court. There's no gospel there. You've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so it's the gospel who enables you to live in a world, whether you're being explicitly opposed for your Christian faith or you're just dealing with, with people, the human condition. 1 Corinthians 6 teaches me to deal with humility or it teaches me a perspective of humility. Romans 12 teaches me not to take things personally and not to return the favor, but to enact the gospel. And if you read Romans 12, this is an amazing thing. There's the gospels at work in there because what you're doing is you're entrusting judgment to God. You're not the one executing the judgment. You're not the prosecuting attorney. You're not the judge. But the Spirit of God is big enough and most powerful. He's, he's powerful enough to do this. So, that's point number one. The second thing Jesus promises is that he will, now this is a little bit counterintuitive. That the Spirit, he, he says the Spirit will convict the world of its righteousness. I thought righteousness was a good thing. Not this kind of righteousness. This is the world's kind of righteousness. This is religious righteousness. This is man-made righteousness. It's the appearance of righteousness. You think about the broader context of John's gospel for a moment, the cleansing of the temple by Jesus in chapter two, the, hypo the hypocrisy that was alive in Jesus' day, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of righteousness that the Spirit of God has to make clear is not pleasing to the Lord or the cold legalism of chapter five. When the Pharisees come after Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath, they're quoting the righteous letter of the law, and they go after Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath, and Jesus essentially says, listen, healing is a righteous thing. You guys are, put the book down for a second and see what's happening. Righteousness is healing, John chapter 5, or chapter 8, the woman at the well. And the adultery and the righteousness that they want to impose in judgment on her. That's not righteousness at all, Jesus says. The Spirit of God is going to come and convince the religious world and the pagan world, which kind of in John's gospel are, are, are essentially synonymous. Worldliness is the appearance of religion. And Jesus says the Spirit of God's coming to, to, to expose all of that false righteousness. Man, that's, that's an amazing, that's a gospel moment. Right? If you're looking for a gospel moment in the message, here it is, that every attempt at righteousness that we have and make, Isaiah says, it's like a filthy stained undergarment. Man-made righteousness. An appearance of religion. One of the most important things the Spirit of God ever does is to show us the difference between religious righteousness and gospel righteousness. One of the most important things the Spirit of God will ever show you and me is the difference between our own attempts at righteousness and gospel righteousness. Like Jesus, the Son of God, His righteousness on my behalf, that's all I got. I got nothing else for you. He will change me and he will make me more and more over time. He will, he will help me to live a more and more godly and righteous life. But the remaining sin that still lives inside of me, it runs deep. I, I, can't, I can't bank my hope 
on my righteousness. I can't, this is the message of the Bible. This is the message of the Reformation. This is the message of the gospel. Like, your righteousness will not stand up. You need his righteousness on your behalf. It's the Spirit of God. If you ever, like, if you ever decide, if it ever occurs to you, if you ever have this thought, my righteousness is not good enough. That truth is coming to you by the power of the Spirit of God who exposes all false righteousness, all man-made appearance of righteousness. And then it's the Spirit of God who will also help you to believe, throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. No other way. God made, 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us right, so that we might get the righteousness of God in Christ, the great gospel exchange. So whatever the Spirit is doing, he's exposing false, illegitimate, man-made, apparent, uh, you know, what appears to be righteous. Jesus is leaving. He's no longer going to be able to confront empty religion face-to-face. That's why he says, because I'm going to the Father. So that phrase, does that sound a little enigmatic to you? The, the Spirit's going to convict the world of its righteousness. Look what it says in verse 10. Concerning righteousness, the Spirit's going to convict the world of its righteousness because I go to the Father, because I'm leaving, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no more. Here's what that means. Jesus lived a sinless, righteous life. It's got, it's got gospel implications. Going to the Father is just not, he's not just saying I'm going back home. He's saying I'm going back to the Father. I've lived a perfectly righteous life. I'm going to go present, listen to this. Here's the gospel for you this morning. I'm gonna, I lived a perfectly righteous life on earth. I'm going to go die as a sacrifice, a righteous sacrifice. I'm going to present that to the Father. It's how you're going to get to heaven. That's why I'm going to the Father, because I go to the Father. I'm going to take righteousness that you can't take to the Father, and I'm going to stand before him and be your righteousness. you got to get in on that. That's the only way. Here's the last thing. Uh, the Spirit is going to convince the world of judgment. Again, I thought judgment was a good thing. Well, no, judgment, now maybe you can see more clearly. Sometimes judgment's a good thing. Sometimes judgment's not a good thing, right? We make false judgments all the time. So this is the world's false judgment. And in the text, interestingly, it's tied to a particular person. Who is that person? Verse 11, Satan, the evil one, the devil, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The third thing that the Spirit of God is going to convince the world of is its false judgment. And the false judgment that Jesus has in mind is the outworking of deep, dark evil, evil and blindness tied directly to Satan who is the ruler of this world. So every false judgment, every false read, listen, every false judgment, every false read that we make, 
I'm talking about us as people, like all of humanity. Every false judgment, every false read that we make, whether in a conversation, a courtroom, or a church meeting, is a form of worldliness. It's an expression of worldliness. And ultimately, it's tied to the deception of the evil one who loves to create misunderstanding based on half-truth, gossip, lies. He just loves conflict. The ruler of this world is like a Marvel character who is energized by deception. Like, think of, think of an evil Marvel character who's just energized by deception, and he takes that deception into himself and feeds on it and then gives it back out to all of his demons and human instruments as he's taking over the world, right? Except this is not a Marvel character. This is for real. And Satan is a real evil person. He's a real evil being. And he's the ruler of this world, meaning he's the one who inspires all the conflict and chaos and lies and deception. And Jesus says it's the Spirit of God who, when he comes, will convict the world of all false judgment, all sources of false judgment tied back to, to Satan himself. Jesus' judgment is righteous and true. So picture this. There's this great godly man who's always true and righteous. And he's in competition with the evil ruler of this world. That's, that's the image that's being played out here. Jesus' judgment is righteous and true. The world's judgment, profoundly wrong and morally perverse. Jesus, always accurate. The world's judgment, always distorted at some level. Jesus judges the heart. The world judges by outward appearances. Stop judging by appearances. That's what Jesus says, exactly what he says in John chapter 7. Stop judging by appearances and make true judgments and righteous judgments. And the most mistaken judgment the world has ever made is about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Not seeing him as the son of God. And that includes the religious world. But the Spirit of God will continue to vindicate the righteous life of Jesus. The Spirit of God will continue to, to, to vindicate and justify the, the, the judgment of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus leaves the earth, who's going to continue to expose false judgments? Who's gonna, when Jesus leaves the earth, who's going to continue to fight for right and wrong as it relates to who Christ is and what his vision for the world is? It's the Spirit of God who wants to work through disciples to expose false and deceptive schemes of worldliness. The third thing that the Spirit does is He exposes false judgment. And it, really, at the most basic level, He's the one who helps us to see the truth. He's the Spirit of truth who guides us unto all truth. And he helps us to understand the Bible and understand the way the world really works, what's happening out there. Now let me close with a line from, let me, let me close with the last part of verse 11 if I can. Because it's a real interesting phrase. It says, the ruler of this world is judged. 
the Spirit's coming. He's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he explains sin. He explains righteousness. And now he says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? The ESV has, is judged. The New American Standard has, has been judged. The NIV says, now stands condemned. Sort of got a present tense feel to it and a this has already been done. So what is it, Jesus? What are you talking about? Has this happened yet or not? Is he judged or is he about to be judged? The ruler of this world is judged. What's he talking about? Turn back to chapter 12. Just take a second and flip back a page or two, and let me see if I can help you with this. Look at 1231 and 32. Chapter 12, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this, ju- now will the ruler of this world be cast out when, verse 32, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When I go die on the cross, the ruler of this world will be cast out. When I go die on the cross, Jesus is talking about the cross, when he says back, when, go back to chapter 16, when he says in chapter 16, now the, because the ruler of this world is judged, what he's talking about is he's kind of compressing, he's kind of compressing everything into this moment. I want you to know that what I'm about to go do as I, as I go to Calvary, as I go to Jerusalem, as I go to die on the cross, the ruler of this world will be judged. He will be fully and finally dealt with. See, the world thinks that Jesus was done with when they made the decision. Pilate, Pilate thinks it's game over when they crucify him. I mean, it's just, that's how it's going to end. We're going to kill another criminal. So it's done. Satan thinks that he wins Satan thinks that he wins when Jesus dies on the cross, but, he, but the recurring testimony of Scripture is that Satan doesn't win when Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus is victorious on the cross. Colossians 2 says he triumphs over evil. He triumphs over the evil ruling authorities on the cross, and he changes the effect of their rule and reign in your life so much so that he does it both personally now and he will do it cosmically then. Personally now, you can experience the gospel of Christ, and the ruler of this world can be uh, dethroned and unseated in your own heart and soul. You no longer have to walk in darkness as a slave to the prince of the power of the air. You don't have to walk as a son of disobedience. You can turn away from that. You can embrace the gospel today. When Jesus died on the cross, he made the gospel available to you today, right now. He also, the ruler of this world is judged, means not just right now, but also in the future. So that in chapter 20 of Revelation, we read that the devil is cast forever into the lake of fire. And it is over for him. Jesus is saying... The Spirit of God wants to work at at both a personal level and a cosmic level to bring about the effects of Jesus' cross in your life and in my life. The ruler of this world 
So you don't have to be a slave to him anymore. You don't have to live in disobedience. And you don't have to live under the authority of Satan and his evil rule. You can embrace Christ and live an amazing, redeemed, beautiful discovery of life in Christ. And then one day, ultimately, all the sway of evil and the power of evil that touches this world will be completely done away with. Jesus says that essentially started at the cross. It's this already not yet effect that the Bible talks about over and over again. Here's my appeal to you this morning. I'm going to back out just a little bit and say, because the Spirit of God has the power to convince anybody and everybody who ever gets convinced of sin, false or religious righteousness, and wrong judgment, because the Spirit of God has the power and the ability to do that, I want to ask you to consider um, stop being so mad at the world around you. Stop being so mad at them. Like if they just did the right thing, this would be a better place. Like America would be a better place if these people just did the right thing. Just stop being so mad at everybody who's not doing the right thing. Because being mad at people who aren't doing what you think they ought to be doing is not taking, it's not taking the gospel to them. It's not helping them. And I would even say, as a parent, as a church member, as a coworker, I want to ask you to do another thing. And, I'm going to, and I will be the president of this club. Okay, I'm going to sign this. I'll be the president of this club. I will not be the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. Whether they're believers, whether you're beating yourself up, because you're not preaching the gospel to yourself the right way, whether you're engaging other believers, or whether we're talking about the world who will just not get right. Stop, let's stop trying to do what only the convincing power of the Spirit of God can do. I'm not telling you there aren't rules and I'm not saying there's not right and wrong. I'm not saying there are not times for confrontation. That's not what I'm saying. Please hear the spirit of this. The person who convinces another person that they need Christ or anything else of significance, it's not me and it's not you. Believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and let's start praying that God would radically change the relationships that we are part of. So I want to pray for us. And as I pray, would you join me in asking the Lord to help us stop trying to be the Holy Spirit and let's embrace his power to convince. Lord, we confess this morning that we wrongly enjoy trying to do your job. God, help us not to be mad. Help us not to hate Help us to see the beauty of the power of the gospel in any given moment and bring your spirit uh, to remind us that we can't convince. We cannot convince people of sin and of their uh, false righteousness and false judgments.
And God, I know this is tricky in moments of application. Would you please help us to rest more in you and your power, O Spirit, to do work that we cannot do. Teach us how to walk that way. Teach us how to rest. Teach us how to remain faithful. Lord, fill us as a body with life-giving, compelling testimonies and, and lives. We pray in Christ's name.